Welcome back to another episode of Kohelet. I hope that if you've stayed with us on this journey thus far, that listening to our podcast has deepened your theological understanding of our Christian faith. But even more than that, I really hope in understanding theology better, that your heart is filled with love for God and with awe for who he is. Theology that's done right should always grow the heart along with the head so that we come to trust God more and have greater affection for him. Our God is truly awesome, incredible, wonderful. What God is like our God. And hopefully in reflecting on him and reflecting on our Christian theology, our hearts come to love him more deeply. Today we're going to be discussing chapter 12 of Dr. Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. We are looking at the character of God, specifically the communicable attributes. And this is a subject that is so deep that it's going to require multiple chapters in Dr. Grudem's book, and it's also going to require multiple podcasts. Um, Dr. Grudem breaks this into two chapters. We're probably going to have to break it into at least three different podcasts, maybe more. We'll see how it goes. The question that we're addressing today is, how is God like us in his being and in his mental and moral attributes? How is God like us in his being and in his mental and moral attributes? So these are the attributes of God that are communicable, meaning the attributes of God that are more shared with us, as opposed to the previous chapter where we dealt with the incommunicable attributes, which are things about God that he does not in any way share in common with us. Communicable, communicable is a big word, but what it means is the attributes which God communicates to us, the attributes of God which we in some way reflect as creatures who are made in his image. So in this chapter, we're going to break down the communicable attributes of God into five major categories. And we're going to discuss a total of 20 attributes under those five major categories. Now you can maybe see why this is going to require more than one episode. So let me begin by listing the major categories and then the attributes within those categories. And I'm just going to list them here and then we'll break them down and discuss them further. And keep in mind, these are things that are true about God, which are also in some much smaller way true of us because we are made in God's image. But at this point, we're not studying us. We're not studying man. We're studying God. So our goal here is not to think first about man and then think about God, but rather to think about what the Bible tells us about God, and then from there we can draw some conclusions about who we are as people. We also need to understand that since we're talking about an infinite being who is perfectly integrated in his character and in his nature, all of these attributes connect to all of who God is. So that creates some real difficulty for us as we break them down and we section them out like this. It's not difficult for us to talk about people by kind of sectioning them out and breaking them down, you know, by saying I'm a man and I work at such and such a place and I enjoy this hobby. Those are all totally different things. But when we talk about God, all of his character, all of his nature is completely integrated. So. We have to break it down to talk about him, but in doing this, it is kind of important in the back of our minds that we remember that God can't really be divided up like this neatly. It doesn't work like that for his character. But let's go through these, the five major categories. First, we have the attributes of God's being, 
what is God like in his existence? Under that category, we're going to find God's spirituality and his invisibility. Second, we have God's mental attributes. What is God like in his mind? So there we find God's knowledge or his omniscience, his wisdom, his truthfulness. Third category, we have God's moral attributes. What is God like in his actions? There we'll discuss goodness, love, mercy, or you might say grace or patience. We'll talk about God's holiness, his peace, or you might say his order. We'll talk about God's righteousness or his justice and jealousy and wrath. The fourth category is God's attributes of purpose. What is God like in his choices? We'll discuss God's will, his freedom, his omnipotence or his power and his sovereignty. And then fifth, we'll discuss some summary attributes. These are attributes that don't fit very well in any other category. So there we'll discuss God's perfection, his blessedness, his beauty, and his glory. So let's begin to zoom in on each of these categories now, beginning with the attributes of God's being. So what is God like in his existence? First, we encounter God's spirituality. On page 220 of his book, Dr. Grudem writes, People have often wondered, what is God made of? Is he made of flesh and blood like ourselves? Certainly not. What then is the material that forms his being? Is God made of matter at all? Or is God pure energy? Or is he in some sense pure thought? The answer of scripture is that God is none of these. Rather, we read that God is spirit in John 4, 24. So the point here is that we cannot rightly think of God's being in terms of space at all. Sometimes you might try and think about God and you might imagine him bigger than the universe, or you might imagine him present in some room with you or something like that. But the reality of it is that all of God is in every point of space, and yet all of space and the material universe cannot contain either part or all of God. In other words, God is everywhere and God is also sort of nowhere because the totality of his being cannot be contained in this material universe at all. So another way of saying this is to say that God in his being, in his mode of existence, is completely and utterly different from everything that he has created. It is not merely that God doesn't fit in creation because he's infinite, although it is true to say that God is infinite. Rather, we should say God himself is of a totally different kind of substance and existence from anything that we know in creation. And this is why God prohibited his people Israel from making any kind of image of him to worship in the Old Testament, because there's nothing in creation that could adequately represent God. Dr. Grudem says on the bottom of page 221, to picture God as existing in a form or mode of being that is like anything else in creation is to think of God in a horribly misleading and dishonoring way. This is why God is described as a jealous God, because he's jealous to actually protect his own honor. God wants his creatures to honor him for all of his glory and not to limit him or represent him in a false way. So God in his being does not have a physical body, 
He's not made of matter like anything in creation. He's not energy or some kind of force or some kind of thought or idea. Because even those things, if you think about it, they are all part of this creation. God is not some kind of vapor. God is not even a spirit. It wouldn't be appropriate to say that God is a spirit. Because to call him a spirit is to limit his being to some kind of particular space and time. So we could say an angel is a spirit, but spirits are part of what God has made in creation. God himself is spirit, which is a substance that is totally different than anything that he has made. We really begin to lose language at this point for describing God's spirituality. So we have to affirm what Jesus said in John 4.24, that God is spirit. As Dr. Grudem says on page 222, whatever this means, it's a kind of existence that is unlike anything else in creation. It's a kind of existence that is far superior to all our material existence. We might say that God is pure being or the fullness or essence of being. Furthermore, this kind of existence is not less real or less desirable than our own existence. Rather, it is more and more real and more desirable than the material and immaterial existence of all of creation. Before there was any creation, God existed as spirit. His own being is so very real that it was able to cause everything else to come into existence. So obviously at this point we have to say that we are not like God in the totality of his being. That's true. So how is this a communicable attribute of God? Well, we are material creatures and we have been given a spirit. So in a small way, we do reflect the spirituality of God. We are made in his image, not merely material creatures, but also creatures with a spirit. Next, in discussing the being of God and his communicable attributes, we encounter the invisibility of God. Let's start here by kind of addressing the question, why would the invisibility of God be a communicable attribute of God? Something that we might say we have some degree of commonality with God. Well, part of you is actually invisible to the eye. Your spirit, your inner thought life, in some small way, parts of who you are reflect the invisibility of God because there are parts of who you are that cannot be seen. But when we say that God in his being is invisible, what we mean is that God's total essence, all of his spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows himself to us partially in this age and more fully in the age to come. Jesus tells us in John 6.46 that no one has seen the Father. And 1 Timothy 1.17 calls God the immortal, invisible, only God. God's invisibility means that if we want to encounter God, then we must seek him in order to find him. And it also means that God gets to choose to whom he will reveal himself and when he will reveal himself. This brings us to the other aspect of God's invisibility, which is that God does show himself to us partially. God wants us to think of him. And in order for us to do that, we have to be able to see him in some sense. So the Bible is full of analogies from the created world that describe God to us in small ways. 
so that from the things which are made, we're able to conceptualize something about God's being. And God in the Old Testament further revealed himself, parts of himself, in different kinds of appearances. He walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Or sometimes you get this language about the angel of the Lord that shows up different places. So sometimes God does partially show himself to humans. But of course, an even greater visible manifestation of God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We'll dedicate whole chapters to exploring that idea, the incarnation and God with us in the flesh. But Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a unique visible manifestation of the invisible God. When it comes to how we'll see God eventually after we die, when we join him forever in heaven, Scripture does tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, that we will see God face to face. How exactly that works, we're going to have to wait to find out, since we don't get a whole lot of detail about it. What we can be certain of is that seeing him face to face will be the greatest thing that any of us has ever experienced. On the day that you see him face to face, your heart will find all of its desires satisfied. Perfect joy, perfect peace. You will know perfect love and the fulfillment of all of your desires. Everything that the heart longs for, everything the heart needs, will finally and fully be satisfied when we see the living God. Next, we're going to move to the mental attributes of God. So this is another category under the or the communicable attributes of God. And we're going to begin this section by talking about God's knowledge or God's omniscience. God knows himself and he knows all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal fact. So God fully knows himself and he knows all actual and possible things. He knows all of those things in an eternal time frame and he knows them all simply. So let's explore what that means. I still remember the first time that I actually studied this truth about God's character and it was an absolutely mind-blowing experience for me. The word omniscient just means that God is all-knowing. So when we speak about God's knowledge, what we mean is that God knows everything, just as 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 says. For starters, God knows himself. He knows himself fully perfectly, completely. And that may sound kind of silly, but this is actually the greatest thing that God could know. Since God is the greatest thing and he is infinite in his being, for him to know himself fully is the greatest thing that he could know. And isn't it kind of a strange truth that we don't even know ourselves fully? Like, have you ever had one of those moments where you're thinking about something and you arrive at a clearer understanding of yourself, God has never had an experience like that because God knows himself fully. Next, we can say that God knows all things that are actual. So all things that exist and all things that happen are fully and completely known by God. God knows what's under the rock on that distant planet 50 billion light years away from Earth. 
God knows all things that are happening on planet Earth at all times. All things that exist and all things that happen are completely known by God. And God also knows not only what's taking place in the present, but he knows the future. As we're told in Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10, which says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Or Psalm 139 verse 4, which says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So God knows all actual things, but God also knows all possible things. There are places in scripture where we learn that God knows the possible outcomes that would happen if events went a certain way instead of another way. So we actually see this in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 through 13, which you might want to go look at at some point, where David asks God a question about what Saul might do under two different circumstances. And God knows the answer. God knows what Saul will do under either circumstance. Think about that. God knows everything, which includes every possible thing that might happen in any alternate set of circumstances and any possible thing that might happen because of those different circumstances. But God also knows everything that he knows all at the same time without even having to think about it. God is always, at all times, perfectly aware of all things past, present, future, and possible. So there are some things that you know, but you only know them if you think hard about them, if you recall them to your memory. God is not like that. Everything that he knows is simultaneously always in his mind, and God knows all things. As Dr. Grudem writes on page 226, God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer, nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he had not thought about for a while. Rather, God always knows all things at once. All of these facts and all other things that he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers, for he knows the end from the beginning, and he never learns and never forgets anything. Every bit of God's knowledge is always fully present in his consciousness. It never grows dim or fades into his non-conscious memory. Wow. We can also add to that that because God's knowledge is eternal, he never learns anything new. His knowledge never changes, it never grows, it's complete, and it's perfect. Now, at this point, Dr. Grudem takes a rather lengthy detour to discuss a modern heresy that surrounds the topic of God's knowledge or God's omniscience. That heresy is called open theism. Open theism claims that God cannot know the free choices that people will make because then they wouldn't really be free since they're already present in the mind of God, if he knows them ahead of time, then they aren't really free choices. And Dr. Grudem responds to this heresy by quoting long passages from Isaiah 40 through 48, which is another big chunk of scripture that I would highly recommend you go read. But I think rather than go down this kind of deep rabbit hole here, 
we'll do what Dr. Grudem himself does, and we'll hold off really discussing the concept of man's free will and God's sovereignty until we get a little bit further into his book, into chapter 16. And another thing that I'll do regarding open theism is when our elders do our next kind of roundtable discussion about different theological subjects that we've been covering in this podcast, I'll bring sure I'll, I'll be sure to bring up the idea of open theism so we can discuss it a little bit more. If you really want to go deeper into this theological heresy to understand it better and to understand a right biblical Christian response, then I would refer you to a book called God's Lesser Glory by Bruce Ware. But we'll pause on that for now and we'll move on to the next aspect of the communicable attributes of God. Still under the subheading of God's mental attributes, we have God's wisdom. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Because God has perfect wisdom, his decisions will always bring about the best results. From his point of view, of course, not not always our point of view. We might disagree with how God chooses to do some things, but that doesn't mean that what God does is less wise. In his perfect wisdom, he is doing the best things, and he's getting there in the best way. And because God has perfect wisdom and his decisions will always bring about the best results, they will always bring about the best results through the best possible means. So Romans 16 verse 27 calls God the only wise God. And in Job chapter 9 verse 4, we're told that God is wise in heart. We can also say that even something as crazy as God's plan of salvation, where man falls into sin and God has to come in the flesh and God has to die for man. Even God's plan of salvation reveals his perfect wisdom. Since Jesus is called the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. And God's plan for redemption is wise because that plan comes from the mind of God, even though the world looks at this and says that it's foolishness. Actually, the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that part of God's wisdom is to use what foolish men see as foolishness to reveal the wisdom of God to the praise of his glorious grace. So in thinking about the wisdom of God and God's plan for salvation, we're led to agree with Romans chapter 11 verse 33 that declares, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So hopefully at this point, it might be somewhat obvious how God's wisdom is a communicable attribute. God is willing to share his wisdom with us. Through his word and through his spirit, God makes his wisdom available to us. We can become wise. God is gracious to give wisdom to those who ask for it, like James chapter 1 tells us. So although we are not God and therefore we can never have perfect wisdom, like God himself has, we can never have complete wisdom like God in his perfection does, we can access a portion of his wisdom which he is graciously willing to share with us. Next, let's talk about the truthfulness of God. On page 233, Dr. Grudem gives us a definition here. 
He says God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. When we talk about God's truthfulness, we begin with the idea that he is the true God and all other so-called gods are false gods and idols. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus declares, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. At this point, things get a little bit weird, but they also get a little bit awesome. So hang with me here. What does it mean for God to be the true God? Well, it means that God in his own being and character is the only one who fully conforms to the idea of what God should be. So think about that. What does it mean for God to be the true God? It means that God in his own being and character is the only one who fully conforms to the idea of what God should be. As Dr. Grudem says, a being who is infinitely perfect in power, in wisdom, in goodness, in lordship over time and space and so forth. Whatever the idea of God is, that idea is in the mind of God and God himself conforms to it and therefore he is the one true God. In other words, God is the true God because he conforms to his own being as God. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be able to see the circular reasoning here, but that gets us to the second part of the definition that I offered a minute ago. Remember, God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. So it's important that we understand here that God is not truthful because he corresponds to some idea of truth that is outside of himself or above himself or greater than himself. If that were the case, then we might be able to say truth is God because it's greater than God. Rather, what we need to understand is that all truth exists because God himself exists. Therefore, whatever God is, is true. Whatever God declares is true. Whatever God makes reality is true. He is the true God, and everything he does and says is true, because he is the God from whom truth itself finds its being. This is wonderful encouragement if we think about it, because it reminds us then that everything that God says and does is perfectly truthful. And everything that God does is right because he is God. Everything he says is right because the definition of right comes from him as God. God always speaks the truth when he speaks. Whatever we read in scripture, because it is God's word, is true. And when we look at Jesus, who is called God's word, he's called the word of God, we can be sure that everything he says and does is also true. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that our God is the God who never lies. And in John 17 verse 17, Jesus says of God the Father, your word is truth. So as for how we reflect God's truthfulness as one of his communicable attributes, well, we can be people of truth to the extent that we speak the truth and live the truth and seek the truth, then we are reflecting God's truthfulness. So we can 
choose to speak the truth and not lie, and that's a reflection of our God who loves us, we can seek truth from God's word and we can seek to apply that truth to our lives. And in that way, we reflect God. We can love truth and we can hate falsehood. That's also something that's true of God that can be true of us. And we can rejoice in the truth and in the fact that our God is a God of complete truthfulness. Well, we've not finished all of the communicable attributes of God. We still have many more to go. But this does seem like an appropriate place for us to pause this episode and hold off until next week uh, to go further into the communicable attributes of God. So we'll pick up in our next episode discussing the moral attributes of God. And I hope that you'll continue to join us as we discuss that next week. Blessings. Thank you.